Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hello, and welcome to Rational Security, the all-security-is-local edition. I'm Shane Harris of the Daily Beast, bruised and battered Washington pedestrian. I slipped twice on my way to work because people don't scrape off their damn sidewalks in the nation's capital. You all probably drive and haven't had a problem with that. I, I've driven and had a problem, and I've also walked and had a problem. Yeah, yeah. Had a problem? I just have not slipped at all. Okay, well, all right. We're going to get to that in my object lesson because apparently, you know, some of our panelists have great balance. Just, you know, slide over sidewalks. Um, okay, this week on the show, Eric Holder reflects on the most leak hostile administration in history. He didn't necessarily call it that. Is ISIS becoming a global extremist hegemon? And the ceasefire in Ukraine becomes more farcical by the minute. I'm joined this week, as always, by my friend Ben Wittes, who drives a lot and walks too. Hi, Ben. Hey. And this week, you may have heard in the background, you may have not heard the, week, the, the voice of Tamara Kaufman Wittes. She is away this week in the region, as we say, and has foolishly left her husband in charge of the household. How's it going, by the way? It is the chaos that it always is. Animal house. (laughs) Nothing has changed. We are joined this week by our special uh, guest panelist and our friend, Jen Daskal. Hello, Jen. Hello. Uh, Jen is an assistant professor of law at the American University Washington College of Law here in D.C., Uh, and from 2009 to 2011, she was the counsel to the assistant attorney general for national security at the Justice Department, and among other things, served on the Secretary of Defense and Attorney General-led Detention Policy Task Force. We know Jen, though, because of a a wonderful, legendary episode of the Lawfare podcast. That's right. Uh, And listeners of this podcast may remember that one. Ben, do you want to... Jen, do you want to remind us of what that was? There was a fatal, a very fatal zombie attack, a zombie apocalypse that descended upon the nation, and, and we were called upon to provide our legal guidance and assistance yeah. in dealing with this very dangerous event. Bad, bad things happen in the summer when, when you need content. They do. August is a deadly month. It is. It's not a month for leisure. And oh. zombies seize on that. We will, we will link to yes. the Zombie Apocalypse podcast yes. on our show page. Go back and check out that podcast. It was great, and Bobby Chesney had a remarkable... Uh, end. And yes, I'm going to leave it at that. Um, okay, we're going to start, as always, this week with wordplay. Uh, ben, we're going to go to you first. Eric Holder gave a speech on Tuesday. He made some remarks about press leaks and investigations of leakers. He said that the Justice Department could have prosecuted far more cases than it actually did. Uh, the New York Times' Jim Risen, who's been on the business end of federal subpoenas for a few years now, had a few things to say about that via Twitter. Fill us in. All right, well, uh, so I guess I saw Jim Risen's uh, Twitter feed uh, last night, and I expected uh, Eric Holder's comments to be absolutely outrageous and press hostile. 
Uh, so then I went to the speech, to the text of the speech, which was actually about criminal justice reform and didn't mention any of these issues at all. This was a speech holder gave yesterday at the National Press Club. And I realized that actually what provoked Risen was only uh, a holder's response to something in a Q&A. So I pulled the video of it, and here is what Holder actually said. The Obama administration has prosecuted eight alleged whistleblowers under the Espionage Act, more than all previous presidential administrations combined. What justifies this more aggressive posture toward leakers? For the record here, the Justice Department prosecuted seven. So we, eight is right, but seven by the Justice Department. Um, and we inherited, I think, two of those. Uh, what I would say is that um, we have not, there's been a great concern by members of the press about the uh, about these prosecutions. And I understand that, that sensitivity. Uh, we had a series of meetings at the Justice Department over the course of the, of the summer where we talked about um, changing the way in which the Justice Department uh, would view these cases, the policies that um, underline uh, how we would interact with members of, uh, of the media. And I think we've come up with some new policies, new procedures um, that I think have been generally, you know, well received. Uh, what I've said is that we have to continue to look at these policies to make sure that uh, they are kept up to date um, and make sure that we are meeting the, um, the needs that we have in the Justice Department while being sensitive to the real role uh, the important role that members of the press play. Uh, you know, I think that, yeah, more, I guess that number is correct, more than other um, uh, administrations, but that leaves us with a total of, I guess, five or six that this administration has brought over the course of um, of six years. Uh, I don't think, as you look at those cases individually, that uh, there was anything inappropriate about the cases that um, that were brought. And I think if you look at the case, the last case involving uh, Mr. Risen, the way in which that case was handled after the new policies were put in place uh, is an example of how the Justice Department can, um, can proceed. Um, when you have people who are disclosing, for instance, the uh, identities of people who work in our intelligence agencies, um, that's the kind of case that I think we have to bring. But I also think there's a question for, for you all, for members of the press, as we have asked ourselves when it comes to uh, national surveillance, simply because we have the ability to do certain things, should we? And I think members of the press have to ask that same question. Simply because you have the ability to, um, because of, of a, a leaker or a source of information that you have, you have the ability to expose that to the public, um, should you? doesn't mean, and I'm not saying it, it is, it is for you to decide. It is not for the government to decide, but it is for you to decide. Um, I'll you know, use an extreme example, perhaps unfair. Um, in World War II, if a reporter had found, about, found out about the existence of the Manhattan Project, is that something that should have been um, disclosed? Now, we're not in a time of war, I understand, and I said as an, as an extreme example. But I think there is a question that members of the press um, should ask. Um, about whether or not the disclosure of the information um, has a, a negative impact on the national security of, uh, of the nation. We have tried to um, be appropriately sensitive in bringing those cases that um, warranted prosecution. We've turned away, I mean, turned away substantially greater numbers of cases that uh, were presented to us and where prosecution uh, was sought. 
Grr. Grr. Grr, Eric Holder. Oh, God, the Manhattan Project. All right, Ben, just, just start talking. Okay, I so can. look. If James Risen had said grr uh, and tweeted grr, I don't think we'd be here talking about this time. I'm, right now, let me read you the sequence of tweets that Risen. Uh, Risen, who is a reporter for the New York Times, uh, and, you know, which has some pretense, I suppose, to uh, objectivity, to uh, facts, to reportorial standards. A reporter for the also who has been resisting a subpoena multiple authorized subpoenas. by this attorney general right. multiple times. So he's got a dog in the fight, and here's what he tweeted. Given Holder's speech today, I repeat, the Obama administration is the greatest enemy of press freedom in a generation. I think that would be news to ISIL, uh, the Saudi royal family, and Vladimir Putin. Eric Holder has been the nation's top censorship officer, not the top law enforcement officer. Eric Holder has done the bidding of the intelligence community and the White House to damage press freedom in the United States. Eric Holder has sent a message to dictators around the world that it is okay to crack down on the press and jail journalists. Eric Holder leaves behind a wrecked First Amendment. Eric Holder managed to destroy any semblance of a reporter's privilege in the United States. This is Eric Holder's true legacy on press freedom, quote, there is no First Amendment reporter's privilege, unquote, from DOJ brief in my case. I plan to spend the rest of my life fighting to undo damage done to press freedom in the United States by Barack Obama and Eric Holder. My son is a reporter. I don't want him to have to live in a country where there is less press freedom than when I started as a journalist. And he concluded this morning, I wouldn't call my comments overnight. on Holder's speech yesterday a Twitter rant, more of a Twitter fact check. Oh, okay. So, so I'm... slept on it a little bit. So he slept, well, I... Or, I mean, or I, someone pointed out the problems of some of what he wrote. The bureau chief called Jim and said, hey. So my question is, is this uh, an appropriate way for a New York Times reporter to behave? Um and do the normal rules we associate with things like journalistic fairness, objectivity, not using ad hominems, uh, not using wild hyperbole, do those rules simply not apply when the press, as an interest group, which is the role that Ryzen is um, playing here, feels affronted in its institutional capacity rather than in covering a story? I think probably the answer to that question is, is it appropriate for a New York Times reporter to do what he did? Probably no. And I'm sure that probably there is something in the social media guidelines for New York Times reporters that would strongly have cautioned Jim against saying those things to the Attorney General and publicly. But I think that's the wrong question. I mean, I mean, from, from this, I think you could also ask, is this what someone who has been fighting for the past several years to resist a subpoena that was putting him in the position of having to identify a source who might go to prison, who himself said he was willing to go to jail for a principle, is that an appropriate response? And I would argue that some of the things he said are over the top. I would agree with some of the things he did say. But I think if you look at it from the perspective of Jim being somebody who was resisting a subpoena and fighting for a principle, then yes, it's appropriate. I mean, he is exercising free speech. Now, whether he's allowed to take off the New York Times reporter hat and do that is another question. I would point out, by the way, the subpoena was not for information that was in the New York Times, but in a book. So you could argue that he is responding as a book author 
and not a representative of the New York Times. But I would leave that to the employee handbook. Or as an individual. I, 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 chafe, I chafe a little bit at this idea that once a reporter, always a reporter, always have to act as a reporter. So um, as long as it's, I, mean, I, don't, I haven't seen the Twitter account, if he's tweeting from his official New York Times Twitter account, that's one thing. I think it's not. If it's a personal account, it seems like he's wearing a different hat. Now, I wonder, as from the perspective of somebody who's been fighting a subpoena, this doesn't seem like a really good strategy. I mean, there's a huge question is, what, what was he thinking here? Um, what, what do you get by such extreme hyperbole? Although, he did, although it is over, he's not going to be forced to testify. But what, what if you changed the subject of the conversation and you made it say, uh, as his former colleague Linda Greenhouse once did, you know, a series of kind of over-the-top uh, statements about uh, abortion rights. And uh, I forget exactly what Linda said, but, you know, she expressed very, very strong views um, uh, about, you know, sort of war on reproductive rights. And people said, wait a minute, you know, a reporter who covers the Supreme Court shouldn't be talking that way about the substance of issues that justices rule on and that, you know, she has to cover. And why, you know, an intelligence reporter who covers Eric Holder, the intelligence community, and the White House, should he be going around saying that there is an agenda to destroy press freedom on the part of these people? Um, is, is that an appropriate thing to, I mean, what, what if he had said, you know, the war on women uh, continues, and Eric Holder is, you know, leading the. I mean, that would be sort of false. Uh, so, but, but a lot of this is false too. Uh, you know, I, I just, I, I wonder what what the line of propriety is in sort of ad hominem attacks against your uh, subjects as a reporter. Yeah, but I mean. At the same time, I don't know that he was attacking Eric Holder personally, right? I mean, he's attacking. Well, he did say he was a, a, a menace to to free speech and, and to the free First press. Amendment. <laughs> but, uh, well, he said he, the uh, just. I, I believe his first one was the Obama administration is the greatest enemy of press freedom in a generation, and it's a generation that's seen some pretty amazing. I mean, I still beheads journalists, um, right. right? And I mean. I mean, in full disclosure, by the way, Jim Risen is a friend of mine, and so is his son. So I don't want to be seen as defending them out of any personal affection. But I, I think that, <clears throat> yes, I mean, some of these things are hyperbolic. I agree with Jen. Um, the, the greatest threat in that generation, I, no. I mean, if we're talking about him, we, he needs to narrow the context a lot in a way that I don't think that he did in, in this riff. And maybe the next morning he sort of thought better of it. But... To your question about is this appropriate for a New York Times reporter, I guess I mean, I'm mean i left with the question of why should he have to be forced to sort of wear the New York Times reporter hat all the time when particularly this was this was information that was published in a book to which he is the copyright holder. I mean, to what, he had to pay legal expenses. Well, he didn't have to pay his own legal expenses, but the New York Times did not cover his legal expenses. I mean, everything that this occurred in was in the context of a book that he wrote as an individual author not necessarily on the New York Times clock. I don't know why it's, as a philosophical matter in, or an ethical matter, even inappropriate for him to, to go off, even if he did, you know, shotgun blast the Attorney General and probably said some things that, you know, maybe in retrospect were went too far. 
It seems to me that there's a difference between this and the Linda Greenhouse example. So I would, I, if he's doing this and he's also covering leak prosecutions, that seems to me to be a direct conflict of interest. Just like Linda Greenhouse, if she's covering abortion cases that are before the Supreme Court, probably shouldn't be tweeting her personal views about abortion rights. But as long as he's not covering this, it doesn't seem to me to be a direct ethical problem. It does just seem, given that he's a national security reporter and given that he's going to be covering the Obama administration and Holder, it doesn't seem like a particularly wise thing to do for a whole host of reasons, but, but it doesn't seem unethical to but me. But hang on, I'm, I'm, I, I don't, I'm not accusing him of ethical problems. Uh, you know, it seems to me he has a right to think what he wants of the people in question. But as a national security reporter, if your public stance is that the intelligence community, the White House, and the Attorney General are engaged in a war against the free press, that is not simply a, a, a position about the merits of leak process, right? I mean, th that's, that's a characterization of an entire uh, mode of operating on behalf of the government that I would think the New York Times would have anxieties about having publicly expressed by people who are covering those entities. So the question for this then is, chances that Jim Verizon is sanctioned by his employer for what he did? Zero. But you make a good yeah. point. I mean, I, right. <laughs> you, you make a good point. I mean, it's it's not, it's, it's in nobody's interest, the New York Times, nor his interest, I think, to be having this, this public discussion in this tone. But I, but I would say that if Linda Greenhouse, if, if we sub back in Linda Greenhouse, and she said, um, you know, the analogous thing, uh, I'm trying to think about, you know, about the conservative justices on the Supreme Court, um, that they're engaged in a systematic war on blah, blah, blah. I, I do think she would be, you know, there would be a lot less tolerance for that. And there's something about when you're speaking about the press's institutional interests, that the press turns off its normal requirements that you behave in a certain way. I don't know. I feel like everything he's been through, Jim can be forgiven. You know, a little. No, bit you're just soft on him. I you're, am. You're, you're just, you're just, you'll, you'll forgive him I'm anything. I'm in the tank. I'm in the rising tank. All right. All right, Jen. Uh, speaking of the New York Times, uh, the New York Times reported this week, quote, the Islamic State is expanding beyond its base in Syria and Iraq to establish militant affiliates in Afghanistan, Algeria, Egypt, and Libya, American intelligence officials assert. So do we have a new global war on terror here? Well, that's a good question. And I think this article, this article is particularly interesting coming out just a few days after Obama administration put forward its proposed authorization to use force against ISIL, where there was language in that about associated forces that seemed to kind of come out of the blue. It talks about individuals who are fighting alongside ISIL, which is a concept that doesn't, hasn't really existed before. Nobody's talked about associated forces in that way before. And this article seems to explain what they're thinking of. So, so when this article goes on and it says that there's formal pledges of support from probably at least a hundred, a couple hundred extremists, not necessarily groups, but extremists in countries such as Jordan, Lebanon, Saudi Arabia, Tunisia, and Yemen. So it raises a question about what exactly is this global network? How connected is it? And, and who are we, when we're talking about fighting this network, who do we think what does it mean to be an extremist that's pledged support? Is so these that are part like of a few hundred people in other countries who have identified themselves as ISIS supporters, and therefore the question is, can we use 
military force in those countries against those handfuls of people. And, and the, the authorization that Obama put forward seems to authorize that. If there's, I mean, there's a separate international law question. So assuming that Saudi Arabia or Lebanon or T- Tunisia or Yemen consented to the strikes, so you, so you've addressed the international law question. It seems that the authorization would, would cover these groups. And it seems like that might be very much what the Obama administration was hoping for when it pushed this broad language. There was also Nick Rasmussen, who's test, who's quoted in that article. Right, National Counterterrorism Center director. Said, said last week in testimony that, um, ISIL's reached out and developed affiliated relationships or endorsement-like relationships with groups outside of Iraq and Syria, including in North Africa, including in Algeria, and including in, I believe, Yemen as well. And that was in direct response to a discussion about what would be authorized under the, under the proposed authorization to use military force. So it raises, I think, some really hard questions about what is being authorized here if, if this authorization goes forward? We've talked about it. The most public discussions have been in the context of using force in Syria and Iraq. But this looks like, A, ISIL's posing a much more global threat than often has commonly been discussed, and B, maybe we're prepared to go after ISIL in this global way, but based on pretty loose standards, I think. So, Ben, you got us into this mess because you're the one who's been talking about AUMFs and the, the need for AUMFs and repeal. Well, Jem has too. <laughs> well, I know. But I can't, I can't gang up on both of you. Okay, you both got us into this mess. So, I mean, Ben, respond. <laughs> no, I think Jen's, Jen's point is correct. Um, one of the things about this draft AUMF in general is that it is uh, designed to look narrow and be broad. And I think it's not very cleverly designed in that regard, in the sense that almost everybody except the hard right has interpreted that way. So everybody from, you know, people on the left um, to people like Jack Goldsmith and, you know, me have looked at this and said, you know, gee, um, this would kind of let the president do almost anything he wanted. And the only thing that sunsets is the new stuff. Um, and so I, I, I think, you know, Jen's point is correct, um, that one thing it would do is give you a, a, a very clear authorization to target a whole lot of individuals. And I think this is a, a perceptive way of thinking about how you might go about defining and how the administration will go about defining who the individuals are that this authorization covers. Wait a minute, are we talking about I mean, targeting individuals based on, what's the standard, maybe the article doesn't go into this, but expressed solidarity with ISIS? Or are we talking about material support, concrete linkages, or is it enough to just say, ISIS is great, I support what they're doing, and then suddenly, you know, you could have a drone so, over you tomorrow if Saudi Arabia says it's okay. So my guess is if the administration were pushed on it, they would say that it's more than just saying ISIS is great. But at the same time, the language in the proposed authorization just authorizes the use of force against individuals who who fight alongside ISIL. And so alongside is a pretty broad, it's not, we're no, since we're no longer limiting it to organized groups, and we're no longer tying it to the concept of co-belligerency, meaning you've actually joined up in the fight. We're just talking about individuals who are fighting alongside ISIL. That gives the administration a lot of leeway. And I think one, I mean, 
it, one of the potential dangers is that we, we don't always have good intelligence. Our intelligence isn't always accurate. And in some of these countries, there may be incentives and political infighting to, to name people yeah, who are opponents and put them on lists. And you know, we do a lot of things really well, and a lot of the times we have really good intelligence, but sometimes we don't. And this type of really broad um, authorization, to me, raises some serious alarm bells. Why now, to, to be fair to the administration, they have this weird history which I actually I'm very sympathetic to, of seeking very broad, of getting broad authorizations, but interpreting them relatively narrowly. So the you know the the, the most obvious example of this is their is their targeted killing policies, where they claim the authority as a matter of law to kill anybody who's part of any force that's associated with Al Qaeda. But then if you look at their memos about, say, the killing of Anwar al-Awlaki, the actual circumstances in which they assert the authority to do it are exceedingly narrow. And I could see the internal argument within the administration that went, let's get the authorization written very broadly and so that we have the flexibility in the exigent situation to do what we need and we'll use policy constraints to interpret it in a in a much narrower setting in practical terms. Um, and that would be consistent with the way they've behaved in the past. On the other hand, I certainly don't think that, you know, the people who are who look at an authorization like that and say basically, you know, gosh, that that's a lot of people that you're potentially authorizing uh, the use of force against. I, I certainly don't think they're wrong to 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 be aware of that. Right, and I I mean just to push back a little bit. I you know this this even even if this authorization um, were put into place today, it's a three year authorization. So it sunsets. It, it still is in place for the next administration. So even if this administration interprets it in a relatively narrow way, there's nothing about that that binds a future administration. Correct. So I, there's there's that problem. But the other thing is that it really it really smells and reads like they're actively trying to get the authority to broaden who who they can use force against. Because you have this testimony from Nick Rasmussen, you have this article, and it suggests that there's a sense that this this group is growing in ways that we just this Hydra like ways, and we want to be able to fight them, not just groups that have joined up with them, but individuals who express some sort of connection to them wherever they're located. And I worry about the precedent that sets. And I also, it's not, it's not as if they, if they don't have this authority, they couldn't act in the exigent circumstance. They still have the inherent self-defense right to act if there truly is an exigent circumstance where some extremist in Tunisia or Egypt or Afghanistan is posing a, an exigent threat against the homeland. And as Jack Goldman has pointed out, they still have the 2001 AUMF to fall back on. Right. Well, well, this doesn't pass. If you do have this one, I mean, (laughs) it's completely unconstrained. Well, that's the ultimate irony, right? Because all of the constraints in in this, some of which are real, like the like the sunset, and some of which are optical, like the restraint on ground forces, uh, are complete fictions. If the underlying 2001 AUMF remains untouched and unsunsetted because they're already doing all these things under that and they claim that that's legal. So this is just an added layer of permission. Um, and I, I think there's, that's going to be a very hard, uh, set of problems for them to answer. 
And ironically, if, if I'm right about what this language does, if this, this authorization actually just provides an even vaster set of authorities that will, if the administration, if a future administration reverted back to the current definition of associated forces, which is purportedly being used, um, this, this, for the next three years, they would have this even greater authority to go against individuals who couldn't be cabined into our, uh, existing understanding of what constitutes an associated force. So all what this really would do would be to expand the authority for the administration at the same time that it's being pushed as a desire to end perpetual war and to narrow, to put limits on, on executive power in this area to some extent. Through the looking glass. Black is white, white is black. We said this last week. This is, it's, it's, it's security theater. It's cynical theater. You're not. You're not. Okay. You're I'm not. Gonna you're not going to bait me. I mean, I. I, I, don't, I think you agreed. Your wife agreed with. I, I. I don't think. You know. I don't think this document is inconsequential at all. And I don't think it's inconsequential what they do in the space um, uh, of authorization. Um, but I do think they're playing a slippery game, honestly, in which they're trying to look like they're imposing restraints. And in fact, what they're doing is granting themselves a lot of permission. Yeah, and in my, from my perspective, it's just it's a it's it's a it's a huge missed opportunity. I mean, this is there is there's not political moments where the country wants to engage on these issues that often. It's been almost 14 years since the 2001 AUMF was passed, and and now finally there's a desire by Congress to engage, even though everyone across the political spectrum agrees it's been used in ways that was never intended, never imagined by those who passed it back in September of 2001. So we have this moment. We have a president who's now said not once but twice that he wants to refine and ultimately repeal the 2001 AUMF, yet he's not seizing on the political moment, which might not come for a very long time, to try to do the very things that he claims he wants to do. And that, that to me, is just it's, it's disappointing. It's, it's a lost moment. Okay, we're going to move on to my wordplay. I actually have two, but my first one's going to be really short, I promise. My first wordplay is Boku Haram. Boku Haram? Boku Haram. Boku Haram is, is what... Tell me it's a Twitter feed. No, it's what Jeb Bush called no. Boko Haram <laughs> no, no. in his speech at the Chicago Council on Foreign Relations. Merci, Boko Haram. Uh, merci, Boko Haram. Better than Bozo Haram. Are you sure this isn't the Merci, Boko Haram edition? <laughs> no, maybe we should rename it that. We need to go back up and call it the, you know, the Lost in Translation edition. So apparently, we have a story up on this on the Daily Beast. Um, Jeb Bush's speech did not go well. His big foreign policy speech where he came out and called it Boko Haram, said ISIS has 200,000 fighters. They don't. It's more like 20,000. And then he said that the NSA metadata program was vitally important, to which I tweeted, and I hope this is not an ad hominem attack, it's kind of hard to take him seriously on NSA when he's talking about Boko Haram <laughs> in Nigeria. Anyway, um, I guess he's going to probably go back and brush up on his pronunciation. My real word play, unless you want to say something about No, that, I, I got nothing so on good. this. Boko Haram. Oh, I'm sorry, that, I just found that absolutely delightful. Um, so my real word play are, are a pair of tweets from Jeff Pyatt, who is the U.S. ambassador to Ukraine, uh, who tweeted on February 17th, no question that regular military units are involved in the fight, meaning the fight in eastern Ukraine uh, outside uh, Debaltseva, despite Kremlin's pledge to respect September 19th agreement. And he went on to say, very clear that noncompliance around Debaltseva lies with separatist and Russian military units. And what I found interesting about these tweets and why I pointed them out is that the question of whether or not 
Russian military units, organized military units, as opposed to vacationing folks from Russia or Russian-backed separatists or intelligence units, has always sort of been in the mix about what's Russia's real role in eastern Ukraine and in Crimea. And if you go back and read Jeff Pyatt's Twitter feed, and I pulled out two of the most sort of interesting ones where he's calling out very clearly, no doubt, Russian military units are here. Something that the State Department was not as emphatic about and was much more careful in their language about over the past 48 hours I'm from the podium here in Washington. I encourage people to go look at Jeff Pyatt's Twitter feed. It is like an unvarnished, I'm not going to say he's like off the reservation, but he's definitely out in front rhetorically on uh, Moscow and on Putin's uh, role in all this, on what the Russian military is really doing there. And it's just fascinating to me to see our ambassador kind of exercising some degree of foreign policy making and real talk via Twitter, and also who he chooses to retweet. It's really, really interesting, and it's far more aggressive than anything coming out of the White House or Foggy Bottom right now. Can I just say on this, and you know, I did not know what you were going to talk about until you just started talking about it, that this is a great excuse to uh, speak up for the role of real ambassadors uh, rather than uh, donor ambassadors. Um, when ambassadors do their jobs well, they are a, an amazing uh, blade of diplomacy. And I'm thinking this example is a really powerful one, as is Ambassador Ford in Syria. Um, and as was, you know, for all that we're, you know, we talk about Benghazi as a scandal, there was some uh, great diplomacy uh, that lay beneath that sort of tragic outcome. And, you know, when ambassadors are bad, they are uh, do-nothing, sit-there kind of patronage positions. And there's this tension in the way the U.S. thinks about ambassadorial roles between ambassadors as sinecures and ambassadors as real sort of engines of, of on-the-ground diplomacy. And I just want to make a plea for the idea that these are actual real positions that if you put real people in, good things happen. Yeah, and we'll see how, I mean, over the, we're going to see how this plays out now in, um, in the Vaults of, and there's this, the ceasefire, which obviously is not a ceasefire, at least no, in this area. Uh, it's, and a, it's a keep fire. It's a keep fire, exactly. And Pyatt has actually been, he's gone on CNN, he was on Anderson Cooper the other night. You know, you go through his feed, he's retweeting tweets from uh, the UK delegation to NATO showing... PowerPoint slides that say further proof of Russian military involvement in Ukraine. I mean, and I've not heard anything out of the State Department of the White House telling him to stand down on this. Um, I kind of doubt my <laughs> sources tell me that he's doing this with the express permission of the White House. But this really is extraordinary to watch. Sort of, the, this, It seems a far more urgent and a far clearer case of what's actually going on in eastern Ukraine in this region by reading his Twitter feed than by listening to what's coming out of official pronouncements, which is not to say that the administration is trying to say that Russia is not responsible for any of this, but it's, frankly, far more diplomatic, in air quotes, whereas I think what he is saying is just much more straightforward uh, and real. And I just think that's really interesting that he's kind of taking to Twitter to do it. And what's it, 46.3 thousand followers now? Mm -hmm. so. and any, any hint as to what he's pushing for, what he wants done? Well, I think that what they're all pushing for right now is um, a true ceasefire. I mean, the, the OSC monitors, OSCE monitors are there right now. They did meet, I think, uh, probably around morning time in Washington on Wednesday. 
the latest report was they got the, the Russians and the Ukrainians together, and the rebel leaders were there, and everybody was ready to do a ceasefire except for the rebel leaders, which, I mean, of course, is you know a bit cynical. They're obviously taking their cues from Putin and from Russia. But, but, but yeah, I mean, a, a real ceasefire, a real meaningful one. And it seems to me what he's also up to is really trying to call out the extent to which there is direct, organized Russian military involvement in Ukraine, which is a really important distinction. And what's also interesting, too, is if you go look at his statements, we pulled some of this today, Pyatt used the word invasion to describe what happened in Crimea. He has not used the word invasion to describe what's happening in eastern Ukraine. You take that and juxtapose it to the sort of ferocity of his Twitter feed, my guess is that the administration has made a decision not to use the word invasion and to escalate this. And I think that there's probably, I am simply guessing here, but I would imagine that Ambassador Pyatt would very much like to use the word invasion to describe what's happening in the eastern part of the country. Now. Maybe making the case for it. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. And when you talk, when you were constantly calling out direct Russian military involvement in the fighting, you know, fine, don't use the, don't use the dreaded I word, but that's, mm-hmm. uh, that's, that's, that's pretty harsh language. So, okay, so let's move on to object lesson. Jen, why don't you go first since you're our special guest? Sure. Um, this wooden plaque is, uh, was a birthday present that I received when I was 21 years old. It's is, like a wooden carving, really. Yes, yes. Okay. Which is far too many years ago than I care to remember. Um, but it was, I was spending, I spent a semester in Cameroon um, in college, and it was, a kind of, it was an incredible program where we lived with two different families in the Southwest and then in Uinta, the capital. And then the last four weeks, we were sent off, and we all got to go do these independent study projects. And I was up living in this teeny village in way north Cameroon, and... Um, living with a, learning about um, women's rights in this teeny Muslim village. I was living with a widow who had just chosen to raise her kids by herself, which was totally unheard of at the time. Um, not really speaking the same language because I didn't speak Arabic, and, um, but there were enough people who could help out and translate. But I bring this in because it relates to Boko Haram. It just, it's, I've, as I've been thinking about just Look, it's up in my wall, so I see it all the time. But it's it just it, the area that I was in is an area where there's been lots of kidnappings for Boko Haram. <laughs> Boko Haram. It's catching. It's very. It's, it's the catching. And so it just it's made me. I mean, when I was 21, the world was such a different place. Um, and it's it's my kids, our kids, the kids now. Just they, you can't go off and live in a village in northern Cameroon by yourself for four weeks in the same way that I could then. So. My, my very dear cousin, for whom one of my children was named, um, and who later uh, is one of the few people who, in the United States who has died of a bee sting, um, but uh, she was in the Peace Corps in Cameroon, and um, one of my fond early memories is her calling me from Cameroon on my birthday getting the time difference wrong. So I had left for school an hour earlier and uh, got an angry letter from her uh, uh, berating me jokingly for having uh, left for school on time. <laughs> How dare you attend your education? People are not, Believe me, I, w- I would have been rather talking to her. Way and cooler. even that, I mean, making a phone call back then, that was a big deal to call yes. from Cameroon. That was, it took uh, uh, numerous tries and multiple, you could, could barely hear anything. There was like a five-minute delay. delay. Yeah. Well, and this was, this was uh, a good 12 years before you were 21. <laughs> I was probably seven or eight, so... Um, okay, Ben, 
What's your object lesson? Well, so my object lesson is actually uh, uh, relayed from Tamara, who is in uh, at the uh, um, uh, conference of the uh, Institute for National Security Studies, which is a Tel Aviv-based think tank on foreign policy and security issues. And uh, it's uh, she emailed me this uh, photograph, which is a photograph of the uh, uh, an unscientific but fascinating poll of the participants in this conference. So the participants in this conference are, you know, academics, military officers, analysts, journalists, and sort of members of the general public who are interested in Israeli national security. And the question that they polled them on is uh, the simple, not should, but is Jerusalem united? Um, and the amazing thing is that 58.5% of the respondents say no, Jerusalem is not united. 30, almost 31% say it's moderately united, meaning that you know, more than, uh, you know, nearly 90% are saying it's, it's no more than moderately united. And only 10.8% say yes, Jerusalem is united. So I, I don't know to what extent that's a representative sample of Israeli public opinion. Uh, it's not, a, you know, a scientific poll, but it is, a, a, not a sample, but the totality of a group of people who attend a very serious, a national security conference, and 90% of them do not believe that Jerusalem is united, uh, at least not in the complete sense. So I just think it's an interesting data point that I'm not sure what it means or what it says, but throw out there for what it's worth. Wow. Okay, well, when Tamara gets back, maybe we'll interrogate, <laughs> interrogate her, her as to what it means. Uh, my object lesson, I took a picture of it earlier, and you can't see it was the dirt all over my leg, <laughs> all over my pant leg. And I should show you probably the bruise that is on my leg. Um, I slipped on the way to work today. Yeah, but today. were you wearing those shoes? Yeah. Well, okay. Mm, boots. Okay, the tread on these shoes is not good. However, I made it nearly all the way to work until I stopped in front of this, walked by this hotel that had not properly cleaned up its sidewalk. I'm just going to rant on this for a second. I live in Washington, D.C. There's a very strict ordinance you were to shovel off and de-ice your portion of the sidewalk that people walk in. We have a very pedestrian-friendly city, a very high walking walkability index in this city. And it's people who don't do that that jeopardize the physical safety of the rest of us. And it's I really like I get animated about this in all seriousness because I feel like it is in these little micro agreements and transactions that society really can start to break down. Like where etiquette is more important than law most of the time. It's really what binds people together and keeps us from just sort of tearing each other's eyes out. And it's on days like this where I'm trying to get to work. I have a lovely walk to work. And really because this hotel, by the way, it's called Hotel Helix. It's on Rhode Island Avenue. I am shaming them. Did not go out and scrape off the damn four feet of driveway that I may not have been here today with all of you. And I just think that and it really just it, it irks me that people shove off these responsibilities that are really important to keeping communities like literally safe. Okay, so please email the Hotel Helix. Yes. Tell them, shovel your damn walk. <laughs> and uh, we are going to, and, and uh, we're going to stay on this. Every day that there's ice, uh, Shane is going to check the Hotel Helix 
and uh, we're going to keep reporting back to you on have they cleaned up their act. You know what else I'm going to do? I'm going to do this. I'm going to start shaming individual addresses. I'm going to sort of have snow shame. Snow shame. Snow shame. It's going to be a website, a yes. Of your house. I'm going to put it on Twitter <laughs> and just call you out. Okay, you heard it here first. The snow shame Snow shame shame. hashtag. Brought to you by yes. National Security. Exactly. Spaghetti on the wall. <laughs> okay, well, that brings us to the end of our show. Um, join us in this campaign for pedestrian safety, please. Rational Security is a production of Spaghetti on the Wall Productions. Check out our website, SpaghettiOnTheWallProductions.com, to find links to all of our show pages. We have some great podcasts, including a podcast on extreme nature exploration, which if you have not checked it out, is terrific. We have the great Chess Clock Debates which Ben started recently, and we have the third episode of that coming up. Uh, I think I actually debated Jamie Kerchick on press shield laws, apropos of our discussion on the latest one. Um, we have a new one coming up, a new podcast on science and talking to scientists about scientists. We're excited about that. Uh, download Rational Security wherever you get your podcasts, iTunes, Stitcher, and please, please, please leave a rating. That is actually the best way for people to find out about the podcast who aren't hearing it. Find us on Facebook. Follow us on Twitter at R-A-T-L Security. Our podcast is edited by Jen Howell, and our music is performed by Eric Holder with backup from Jim Risen. No, 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 no. You're too smart to think that's true. Our music is performed by, as always, you guessed it, Sophia Yan. The Edward Snowden of pianists. The Edward Snowden. Uploading data for us from Hong Kong. That's right. That's right. For Ben Wittes and our friend Jen Daskal, I'm Shane Harris. We will talk to you next week. Thank you. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com.